Welcome to Cannon Fodder, a behind-the-scenes look at the Glass Cannon Podcast. Doobie, doobie, doo. Welcome back to Cannon Fodder, everybody. My name's Joe O'Brien. And I'm Troy Cliffhanger in the Valley. <laughs> Do you earn that one this week, good buddy? The name's Cliff. Cliffhanger. Oh, man. Remember we almost <laughs> created that character? Good times on the podcast. Good times this week on the podcast. Oh, man. I am beaming. I am overjoyed. It is. It's just sometimes, <laughs> Troy, you walk away from a session and you're like, it's great to be alive. Yeah. You know? It should always be that way. <laughs> it should always be and that it, way. It rarely is. It's very rarely It rarely is. <laughs> Rarely is. Man, do you pull a fantastic move here on so many levels, and I want to get to that later because it's obviously the end of the episode. That's what we will talk about. But first, I want to talk about some of the other things that came into play in this episode 113 of the Mm. Glass Cannon Podcast. A little thing I like to call fly-by attack, which is kind of of an odd thing that I I want to address. Yeah, hotly debated. I want to talk about this strange shadow ability that these awesome creatures have. I want to really delve into descriptive explanations of a horrific critical. I just want to kind of really, really dig in on that. Uh, And then what's going on with Umlo? Umlo. Yeah. Running away, praying in a cave. What's going on there? Uh, I also want to talk about handling, uh, I think you're going to love this, handling DR and metagaming. How ah. does the, those two things seem to relate to me more than so many other things you can metagame about uh, in this game? Plus, uh, a light new segment that we're throwing in this week. Troy is going to enlighten me in a new, a new thing we'll call the Pathfinder Class Spotlight. Ah. And he's going to teach me about a class that I know really close to nothing about. And I know tonight. slightly more. Right. It's a, <laughs> like I said, it's a very light look at a class because you started telling me about, do you know how cool this is? And I was like, save it for cannon fodder. We'll do it in a week. And, uh, and that's what we're going to do. Plus, Class obviously, spotlight. we'll hit you up with some listener mail as Always. So first and foremost, Troy, yeah. fly-by attack. Fly-by attack. Question. Yes. Do you like having this as a GM? Fly-by attack? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I liked it better when I uh, didn't let people get an attack of opportunity as I was flying away, Ooh, which man. I did for at least three books of Jade Reach. <laughs> <laughs> we had so many fly-by attacks that were just brutal, and we got no chance to do anything about it. But now we're really confident that that is the rule, right? That you do get an attack of opportunity on Pretty it. confident. You want to do yourself a favor? Go ahead and Google fly-by attack, attack of opportunity, and watch people argue for pages and pages on the Paisa board. Like, well, actually, it's fly-by attack. It's like a charge-by attack. I mean, the way I read it is you absolutely incur an attack of opportunity because you are flying and making that attack, and all you get to do is keep moving. Normally, once you make the attack, you end your movement. All you get to do is keep moving, but if you're moving out of a threatened square and that person has any attacks of opportunity left, they can use them. Right, and I compared it to ride-by attack, which Sir Will has, and that says specifically in the text, it does not provoke an attack of opportunity. Honestly, I don't really know why. I I guess to balance it in a certain way, because it is uh, a feat 
in the same way that flyby attack is. But flyby attack is infinitely more valuable because you don't have to necessarily move in a straight line. Yeah. And you can move massive amounts of space, and most flying creatures are not going to be too troubled by a group of average Pathfinder PCs. So it, it's a very dominant ability, and having attacks of opportunity balances that out a little bit. And you hit the nail on the head. If it says in ride-by attack that it does not incur an attack of opportunity, and it doesn't say that in flyby attack, they know what they're doing when they write this stuff in, yep. in, in uh, the Paizo people. If it doesn't say that, that's all you need to know. All of it course says, it incurs. All it says is when flying, the creature can take a move action and another standard action, which is an attack, at any point during that move. The creature cannot take a second move action during a round when it makes a flyby attack. Period. End of story. So there's no explanation that you can't or that, yeah, that you do not get an attack of opportunity on a flyby. Right. So Generally, you seem to use this as a, and I hate to do this to you, Troy, but I'm going to use a League of Legends reference that you're not going to get, what I would call a Quinn attack, Nerd! which is like where you literally swoop in, you hit someone, and then you bounce right back the way you came and you end up where you were. That, to me, is a shitty use of flyby attack. And I don't mean, like, uh, not strategic. I mean unfair. I don't think that that's really how it's that easy for a creature to fly in, hit you, and then make it a 180-degree turn and go back to where it came from. Well, I, you know, there's another thing I've always done in the past. is like I just fly attack and then fly in any direction I want. But if you're making – there are rules for fly that you have to follow. True. If you're, if you're, if you're you, hovering, if you're turning more than 45 degrees, if you're making a 180-degree turn. You're right. If you, you do know. make the fly checks, then 100%. But you were doing it in jade obviously without making those fly checks we just didn't really think about it we were just you know just doing it right and i don't think that 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 that's right obviously if you can make the fly check do it but i think there should be some sort of there's a speed that comes with flying that should have to the the momentum should have to carry you through at least around 45 degrees did, did you know this so move less than half your speed and remain flying dc 10 yeah hover dc 15 Turn greater than 45 degrees by spending five feet of movement. So you give up five feet of movement. Ah. It's DC 15 to do that. Turn 180 degrees by spending 10 feet of movement. DC 20. Fly up at a greater than a 45 degree angle. DC 20. These peritons had a plus 14 to their fly. Okay. So they were pretty much going to hit all, any sort of but basic But what was their fly speed? Their fly speed was 60 and good. Okay. All right. Because sometimes so, they have like good, bad, perfect. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for the most part, they would have been able to, to do it. But you still have to roll on it. You, you never roll. know when you're going to roll under seven. You, you know, you can't be 100% sure or sure. under six, whatever. So, yeah, I think that it's, uh, it's a, I will say it's a terrifying ability to come up against when you are a mounted knight. Yeah. That, that has no magic. It, it, is, it is not exactly something that you want to deal with, which is why from the beginning I was like, Skid, do not start any sort of combat. Just let's just sneak away, you know? And he was like, as we were setting up, he was just like, no, no. Well, and when we ended last episode, I put the picture up on my big screen, and I think you guys went the whole week assuming they were large creatures. Yeah, I assumed. Because, right. Well, they were, they were eating cave giants. This is like a routine thing that these giant birds eat cave giants. I mean, with the, the paws of a, of, a, of a hawk and the head of a wolf. 
It's just terrifying. Stag, yeah. It's terrifying. Um, so if it was a large creature, then you would be afraid of it just coming down, grabbing you, and taking you away, throwing you up in the air, and eating you. So what is the story with those cave giants? Why are they... Are these just wild animals that kill whatever they see? Or was there... Are they intelligent creatures? They're, they're magical beasts. Uh, they are intelligent. Um, they have 15 intelligence, actually. So is there some reason they were attacking cave giants? Um, well, a little behind the scenes, um, the I actually moved this encounter to this part of the valley. Um, the way it's written, you come out and it's an encounter with two cave giants that are set there and they're part of that group with Grumchog and Hurag. Oh. They were sent there by Urthash to do whatever they're doing in the Dark Passage. And I just thought, We've done cave giants. And the Periton encounter was in a, a section of the valley that I was pretty confident that you guys weren't going to get to um, in book three, in what we're in right now. Just based on what I think you guys are going to do, I didn't see you guys getting to that Periton encounter if you didn't get to it earlier in the adventure. So I said, oh, this would be so much more fun. I'll have them having, they did a sneak attack on these two cave giants, killed them, and now you get the in Periton encounter. I thought that would be fun. And it ended up so being a So you drew us in to fight this creature you wanted us to fight yeah well, like i just thought it'd be like more a trail of blood fun yeah oh no i mean it was it was definitely more fun it's uh, i i honestly i loved the cliffhanger the blood in the water is so it's just so like engaging yeah. you know <laughs> that sounds kind of awful to say but it is it there's something more to it that i will 100 percent agree with you if we came out of that cave and there were two cave giants standing guard and we just you know baron and nestor just shot them to death I would be completely bored. Right, they're dangerous. I mean, give them the advanced template. Maybe I throw four of them there, and or three, and then. But we did that fight, and you know, sure, I mean, it's fine. It's nothing wrong with that. It's also nice for people that are playing the Giant Slayer Adventure Path that they're listening to this. Is like, oh, next week's going to be that cave giant encounter. Wait, what? He he moved that the periton. It gives them a little. Keeps everybody to, guessing. Yeah, you know, to, to me, it's about. Though it does take variety. away some of our experience or our chance for experience. How do you know? You jerk. Maybe you got more experience. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing you, I doubt it. <laughs> he actually didn't give you any Because <laughs> I didn't like the way I'm low prayed. <laughs> Speaking of which, what's what do you think that was? I mean, definitely partially Sir Will sent him, you know, told him to not get involved because how's he gonna fight these flying creatures with a spear? But but Skid was pretty determined to drive this storyline of him needing to pray. I have two theories on this. Okay. And I'm positive that one of the two is correct. Okay. One, Skid knows exactly what he's doing here. He's built, and this was so interesting about having multiple people play Umlo. Like, Skid is building a story for Umlo that not everyone else knows. You guys don't talk about Umlo's story together. And this is part of his and, journey. Yeah, and Skid is, just like he is as a GM, he is very disinclined to give you any extra information. Yep. So, like, he'll, even as a player, he won't tell you or explain what he's doing. He wants you to figure it out. And it's very interesting to see Umlo praying because he had this relationship with Sir Will and Sir Will is a fallen paladin. Now, obviously, Sir Will had a great moment last week where everyone wanted to kill Fungfar and he made sure that that didn't happen. So is that rubbing off on Umlo? I don't know. But the point is, it's very, very interesting and I'm, I think Skid probably has his reasons. The other option is Skid just didn't feel like playing Umlo. <laughs> And I think there's a 50-50 chance yeah, for and I, one. And I do see why you say one of those is absolutely right. <laughs> that, that pretty much locks down all possible options. There's no other option. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that it's the latter. I, I do think that he... Well, 
God, you're right. It could be. It could be. Well, in that fight, he wasn't going to be very relevant anyway. So, so I could see that. But why did he keep, say, praying? I mean, I know we can ask Skid, but I, th- I think it's more fun not to. Right, right. I think it's more fun to take the next person who's going to play Umlo and latch onto that and utilize yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That's part of the fun of building this improv story with this character. Like we did with every time he fails that hand will save, he rages. He rages. Know? That's yeah. now part of his character. It's happened so multiple times It's now. like a game of telephone. You know what I mean? Like you, he's decided this and now the next person has to take that and kind of change it a little bit. And by the time Umlo's story is told, he'll have, been gone, he'll have gone through a ton of permutations. So talk to me about this shadow ability that they had, which was shadow so lock. weird and cool. What did you think about it when you first read it? Did you think it was something that would cause us a lot of trouble? I can't imagine it was written in there the way you described it. So how did you generate the uh, the way that it played out to us visually? When I first read it, you know, God, long time ago, when I first read book three, this was one of those ones I was like... <laughs> 2016. <laughs> I was like, oh man, this is going to be a pain in the ass to track. That's what I was concerned about. Like, Kate. which ones are marked? Which yeah, ones who's aren't. marked? Who gets by the, who? By which? Which one does it get a plus times? two on? Did, did it already succeed a save against this one? So I was like trying my best to see to have a system to mark. All right, that one marked Nestor. That one marked Baron. That one marked Sir Will. That one failed, and that one. Um, so that was my first thing. But in terms of the way I described it, I just took what it actually happens and made it dramatic. It says. As a free action, a periton can make a ranged touch attack by flying over a humanoid target. Um, If the periton hits, the shadow transforms, its shadow transforms to match the shadow of the creature attacked. So I wanted to make it very clear. So it does say that specifically. Yeah, I I wanted to make it very clear that you could see its shadow. That's why I made a big deal out about that, because I knew if it hit... I wanted that transformation to happen, and, be, and you guys would be like, what is going on? Why does that thing have Nestor's shadow? <laughs> um, and so, and that's what's nice, is when you have a mechanical ability that you can flavor up on your own to kind of put the PCs off guard and make them think like, okay, do, what do we do? What do we do here? What does yeah, that there's mean? another layer here that's happening. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was really interesting. And then you frighten Nestor, which is very frightening, obviously, to the party. Yeah. If he's just going to start fleeing, this is one of those abilities that I have to say I absolutely love. Because I, I also don't think that it's that much of a headache for a GM, mm-hmm. mainly because it is an easy roll against touch AC, which is not something that's hard to track. Right. And you are... Only frightened for one round. You're not rolling for how many rounds. You have to remember the amount of rounds. You're frightened if it then hits you after you've been right, shadow right, marked. Right. If you're shadow marked and then take a hit, you're frightened for one round. That one round is, to me, that's what makes it bread and butter. Makes yeah. it nice and easy because you don't have to keep track of who is frightened for how many rounds. And and if you once you get to start getting to two or three rounds of frightened, you start getting into really, really complicated mechanics because characters are getting off the map. They're entirely out of the encounter. It's just so exhausting. I think the frightened for one one round idea was perfect. Yeah. That was just a perfect way to play it. So that Skid could just... That is hard for us to lose Nestor for a round. But then he's... Turns around and he's back in the fight. Yeah. You know, and it's both mechanically interesting and it doesn't make this encounter something that is a TPK, you know? Yeah. It just, or even at risk of a TPK, really. And it's fun because it, it helps balance the encounter a little bit. It's like, all right, for that round, you guys, it's now a three on four. 
Uh, right. Now it's a three, it's a, three. It's a power it's a, play. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. You know, I, I, I got to read a little bit of Horror Adventures, which came out right around the time when Strange Eons was dropping. And they've taken the frightened mechanic to a whole new level. So frightened, shaken, stunned, and all that stuff. Instead of it just being like a three-tiered system, they've turned it into like a nine-tiered system where there's... For, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but there's like three conditions that are low, three conditions that are medium, three conditions that are high. And based on your fear levels, you go up and down through this system. And bad things happen when you go from low to medium or medium to high, but there's three different levels in between. It is incredibly complex. And I don't know, I would assume that this has to come into play by book three or four of Strange Eons, this system. And it, I mean, I must have read it 20 times and it was giving me a headache. I can't imagine that type of tracking the GM's going to have to do. But it's very cool. If horror is your thing and you love the the mechanics of conditions, then the you need to get horror adventures immediately and then start playing Strange Eons because they've created a system that is, I mean, very, very complex and exciting. That is very cool. Well, last thing on my list I had here. Well, no, not the last thing necessarily, but the, the last thing that is really mechanic-related is the uh, handling DR and, and metagaming. So this came up in the game because these creatures had DR. Yes. and my bl- One of my blind spots, by the way. We always talk about GM blind spots. My blind skids is uh, flanking. Yes. And mine is uh, is DR. I always forget when my creatures have DR. Yeah, I, I never forget it. That, to me, is one of the most pivotal balancing factors in the game. Uh-huh. And I'll, I'll get into that in a second. But I, I want to know, from your perspective, what we ran into in this situation was Della doing a knowledge check and knowing that these things had DR. That's it, period. Right. We didn't know exactly what cut through it. Or do we know? Was it magic weapons, and did we know that it was DR five uh, slash magic? I, I think yeah, I you think knew I that. think we did know that, but we didn't know it was five. We didn't know it was DR five. Sure, and you just—I mean, we can assume that, but that's metagaming. And you, uh, we end up with a situation where Baron starts a full attack action, mm-hmm. and then tries to stop his action once he remembers, because we're just like, because he said I do fourteen points of damage. Well, because I said something. And you said, do you? And we all had a good laugh, and he's like, "Ah, I want to stop my full attack now because bullets are expensive, dude. (laughs) And uh, and you're like, no, you have to go through with it. You have to go through with it. That's one of the first times you've ever made that happen, that you've ever made Grant go through with a full attack action when he has hesitated in between. Because what you – your argument was that Baron is not hesitating. You are hesitating. Right. Grant is hesitating. Do you like the way I handled it? Yes, I do. I do. Um, I I think that that's a tough situation to be in, and I think that you did the right thing. Uh, I think it's a tough situation for Grant, too, because I think he has just as decent of an argument to say that, oh, my character would stop. But it's just hard because... Well, this is the source of the question. You have said this before on Giant Slayer. You have said uh, when you came up against GR, uh, DR, eh, it just doesn't seem to have done quite as much damage as you wanted it to. Well, to the rest of us... To us experienced gamers, that just is DR. Boom. Right. Clearly Maybe said. Maybe fast healing. Why do you DR. do that? Do you do you owe the players that? Do you have to even tell them? No, I don't know. I don't know why I have that tell. I definitely do that a lot. You do. And I don't need to give you that information. So you agree that you don't need to give us that information? Absolutely not. As a GM, I do not mention it at all. Yeah. I, I just don't say it. Now, that is not to say that I don't love it when a high knowledge check figures that out. Right. Because there's nothing more fun to me than the player being like, ah, I sheathe my longsword and pull out my cold iron dagger that I found randomly 
many sessions ago <laughs> so that I can cut through with cold iron. I love that mechanic. Yeah. I, I think it's so fun. But I don't want to – sometimes I have to – pull myself back from telling them because I want them to know so bad. Yeah. But then what I remember is, and this is just my opinion, I haven't really done the math. I'm sure there's math out there on it. I think the DR, which is so much more prevalent in monsters than in any PCs or even NPCs, is designed to balance the fact that NPCs are, o- or I'm sorry, that enemies are always so heavily outnumbered. Powerful ones are just always outnumbered by the PCs. And hit point counts tend to just spill, melt away yeah, so quickly. And if you have a good, solid DR, that really balances a one-on-five encounter really well, I think. It sure does. I mean, you're basically getting, if it's DR5, you're getting five times X, X being the number of rounds the combat goes, and extra hit points. Sure. <laughs> you know, for everyone that doesn't bypass the DR. No, but that's the thing is you're not. You're getting even more. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're getting, you're getting 10 or 15 per, per attack, attack per in a round. hasted round. Right. Five times X times Y times number of rounds times number of attacks. Exactly. That don't exactly. That's huge. Do that algebra. Let me ask you this. When Della rolls her knowledge check and knows that she has DR... Are we always just to assume that she then yells that out to the group? I think mechanically you have to allow it as a GM. Why? And I don't like Why, it. Why, though? Because talking is a free action. That's what they always say. They always say but if the player doesn't action. talk, do I have to assume that? Della never said anything. Correct. No, no, no. Oh, in that, in that, in this case, that's why I think that you were well within your rights to not let Grant continue the or to make him continue the full attack action, because Matthew never said it. Right. I look. This goes both ways. It's like I do a knowledge engineering check on this system, uh, and you roll a twenty-five, and you explain how the whole thing works. Then another character is like, okay, so why don't we put that cog in this thing? I don't like as a GM being like, well, did you share that knowledge? Sure, sure. You but know, in the like, heat of battle, it's totally right. different. That's what I, I think it is a different thing. I think you can separate the two and and say that unless the player specifically says it, this goes back to my like, I hate it when people, I, I, I know I'm changing subjects, but I hate it when people free action drop weapons. And then just pull out another weapon. And when they do that over and over and over again uh, in, like, multiple encounters in a row because they, they want to just utilize the mechanics to keep switching up and, and doing what they want to do, they're within their rights to do that. But I like to add what I call the, the pitching wedge rule, which is unless you say you picked it up, it's still there. It's gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, I... I always leave my pitching wedge. How many times exactly. we go golfing, I'm like, sorry, I got to go back four holes. I left my stupid uh, pitching wedge. Let me grab the cart. It's just a... Just Every drive out of the time we go. But going. no, it is like I think that you need to hold players accountable. They can't think that all this stuff is so free and easy. What if somebody? What if there's a sorcerer that casts a sandstorm or some sort of windstorm, and you rolled your knowledge check and then you're like, it has DR, it has damage reduction. Like, are we just to assume that everyone has that information? Maybe, maybe people need to roll perception checks to see if they hear it. I, I, I don't want to overcomplicate things, but I do think that that knowledge is only owned by one character. And getting it to the other characters should not be a free action just because they heard it out loud by the from the GM. Sure, and I think it's up to the player to hold themselves accountable. And Grant wasn't doing that, and so right. that's why I was like, no. I <laughs> I honestly think 
that allowing him to um, use the judgment the following round, I was being too easy on him at that point. But that's me just deciding, like, ah, what am I going to pick fights about this? Like, if you, that's what he wants to do, sure. I'm going to make you feel guilty about it. But, you know, like... I, <laughs> like I, my mother. I don't... I, I still don't think that that was the, the right call. He does not have that information. Yeah, it, and that is... Obviously, God, we could go on and on and on and on about the separation with player knowledge and character knowledge, and we've talked about it a million times. It's yeah. one of the cruxes of difficulties of, of playing a... a a character, an honest character in the in the game, but I, I do think that it is important for Matthew to notice that and, and mention it. But or, you know, to to say I say this, even if he forgot the first round, Grant goes through that. Then Matthew has to remember on his next turn to say it. If he forgets again. Then that's on him again, you know? That, yeah, and that, that could be fun. I mean, it could be torture, but it could be fun, too. It, like, oh, shit, I forgot to say it. Right. And you always <laughs> come back to this idea that you still have to be playing among friends. Sure. That's what makes it easy. If you're not playing among friends and you're ball-busting like that, it can get tough. It can get a little bit out of hand. But I, I think that in the heat of combat, knowledge checks should not so easily be displayed to everyone. And I think that – and I, I think you would agree with me here just from this conversation that DR is one of the biggest – perpetrators of cutting through uh, out of the game and into the metagame. Oh, because yeah. once people know, once they see something happen that is a little bit off, players that know what they're talking about, or let's say your character has never faced a devil, a high-powered devil, uh, and uh, you, but you have so many times, and you're just like, oh, well, these guys are going to have DR silver or DR cold iron. So um, everybody make sure you get out your cold iron for this, it's like God. That sucks. That yeah. that is that sucks so bad. And I don't think that you're a bad player. I really don't because God, I, how many times have I done that? It's just so natural. It's a little lame sauce, but you have to be aware of it and you try to, have a to good avoid it. Lame sauce radar. <laughs> you have to try to avoid it. Now let me ask you this: You gave me a little shit for this during the episode. Matthew rolled the knowledge check, nailed it, and I said, "What pieces of information do you want to know?" And you were like, "Nah, that's not how it works. You just tell him X amount of pieces of information." I don't know if I necessarily agree with you. I think you could do it both ways. Like sometimes if they only have three interesting things and the guy beat the DC by 15, then I'll just tell you those three interesting things. Otherwise, I think it'd be important for the guy to be like, well, all right, I can get two pieces of information. Does it have DR? Yes. Okay. Is it vulnerable to anything? Yes, it's vulnerable to lightning. Okay, that's all you know. Uh, I like that better than me just giving mechanical things like, well, it has this thing called shadow mark, and basically it blah blah blah, or like uh, you know, just straight up deciding what information I think is more relevant. It has this thing called hor- horrific critical. That doesn't help them in any way. That just tells Could you, you describe th- that in detail, please. Horrific critical, <laughs> the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> the gore attack threatens on a crit eighteen to twenty. If it kills you with that crit, it tears the heart out with its wolf-like teeth. As a free action, <laughs> and anyone that witnesses this savage event must make a DC 13, fort- excuse me, in this case, DC 15 fortitude save, or be shaken by one round, having witnessed their friend have their heart gored out of their chest and eaten. Um, I know that's very cool information, but that's not going to help you in the fight. That's just going to be like, don't don't let it go crit and gore you. Whatever you do, like that's not going to help you with that. So I, I I'm not saying there's a hard and fast. There might be a, a specific rule in the book that says no, you do it this way. I like a little bit of give and take. What kind of information do you want? I like the player to be like, okay, um, is it vulnerable to anything? No. Well, I haven't given you information yet, and you get two bits of information. Okay, uh, does it have dr? Yes. 
uh, is it DR um, cold iron? No. That's all the information you have. Those are your two bits of information. It has DR, and it's not cold iron. That's all you know. I don't know. I think that'd be fun. What do you think? Uh, I'm trying to think of something I could possibly disagree with more. And I'm, I'm coming up with nothing. <laughs> no, I, I completely disagree. And it's it comes down to the, f- the simple fact of the reverse of the metagaming. So this is the fact that your character knows more than you, way more than you. Sure, sure. And when you roll that knowledge check, that is representative of a character knowing the questions to even ask that you don't know. So if you roll a very high knowledge check on a knowledge nature about a natural creature, what that means to me as a GM is that player's character has seen this creature before. And... The player has never seen this creature before, so maybe they're not asking the right questions, and I'm going to penalize them for that on a good roll that their character did. Uh-huh. So in the book, from my understanding, all it says is the role is a knowledge check. Here's the DC. If they pass it, they get a piece of useful information. If they pass it by five or more, they get an additional piece of, in, uh, of useful information. And the reason that I believe it should not be a player engagement situation, which I always understand the want for player engagement, is that it can take away from the understanding of what knowledge checks mean. Knowledge checks do not mean that you get as a player to get yes or no questions answered. They mean that your character knows things you as a player could never know or would never know to ask. So saying something like, does it have DR, yes or no, does it have this, yes or no, it's frustrating because you could very well ask the wrong, completely wrong questions and be led down the wrong path on a good roll. Yeah, no, you're you're right. And it was honestly, it was at PaisoCon when I was playing with another GM, a three-star uh, PFS GM, as far as I know. Um, that's how he did it. And I was like, huh. I can see, and I can see why it's muddy water, but I disagree that it should be, I because I hold knowledge checks very sacred in my games because they're expensive <laughs> to spend points in. Yeah. People do not like spending uh, point ranks in those skills. And when they do, I think they should be rewarded. And when they roll well on them, I think that they should be rewarded. I think it's very different than a speak with dead. I don't think just because you successfully casted Speak with Dead that you as a character get to know the things that this undead person knows. You as a player have to come up with the right questions. Uh, a sense motive can be similar. You know? Sure. I think you're, you're overestimating people that uh, like not wanting to put points into knowledge. I put points into any knowledge that I'm trained in, every single level, regardless of my class. Like I'm a wizard, I'll put it in everything. Yes, but your wizard is the exception. Sure. Any other class, you're trained in three out of nine. Right, but I'm always putting points in that. Every sure, single but, level. But I'm not putting points in the other knowledge checks, but I want to be a specialist in the knowledge that I'm trained in. Go ahead and look through the knowledge check uh, DCs in Adventure Paths. When are they higher than 20, 25? That's pretty rare. They're usually around 15. And that's because yeah. most characters have moderate knowledge checks, whereas a DC 30 disabled device is not strange at all. A DC 30 perception check is average once you get to 10th level because they know that these are skills that everyone is pumping points into. So the Periton is 5 HD, so the DC to find out one piece of useful information is DC 15. If you hit that, in this case, Matthew nailed it. Um, 
And I just have to decide on the fly what I want to tell them. So I'm going to I'm going to always leave out the best information. And look, this is just a matter of GM taste. I'm not saying these are the rules. The, like the rules don't say anything about asking them what they want. If you want to do that, that's 100% your prerogative. Right. And I get why. I don't do it in my games. I give a useful piece of information. And when I do it, I give a very useful piece of information. And it's just because I personally hold knowledge checks very sacred. I think that that, that is a great role to get at the right time. And if you get the right thing, I'm not going to be coy with you. I'm just going to give you great combat information and reward your character for having spent ranks in that knowledge and then rolling well at that moment. How about this? How about this? You nail your knowledge check and I say, all right, you get two pieces of information. I'm about to read them to you. Is there anything you want to know though? And then you'd be like, yeah, I actually specifically want to know, are they vulnerable to fire? Sure. No, yeah, they are not. You know what? That's a, I think that's a good compromise. I, I just think that like, I think maybe giving the player the option. Do you want to ask me specific questions or do you just want me to tell you what your character would know? Right. Because maybe they think they could get something more juicy if they ask the right question. I think that that could be a player decision. That might be fun. Yeah. You're, but if, if you're you engaging say, the player. Are they vulnerable to fire? And I say no. That's one of the bits of information. Right. You've, oh, you've chosen door one. And right. It's already been opened. You, you can't go back. Right. I, I, I like that. There's a risk-reward system there. That's kind of fun. Yeah. I, I, I like that idea. Uh, one more thing on the knowledge checks is just that they represent one of the few that you cannot retry. Yeah. And if you are in a library filled with books about the very topic you're looking up, you still cannot retry a knowledge check. And it's because it represents what you already know. Right. It doesn't represent what you can learn over time or what you, with research. So those checks are so valuable. And if they roll well, I, I like to reward them. Remember Gormley creeping around the library? Yeah. Just trying to learn before oh. they jumped on the uh, Chelish Devil. Oh, Gorm. So many moons ago. <laughs> so many moons ago. Well, we lost Gormley. Speaking of old we characters. we got back. <laughs> Barry! Got it. <laughs> Junior! Sounds like uh, he's in rough shape, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is a, a terrible, terrible situation. Um, <laughs> though it comes in, 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 a, in a situation that I love. Let me just give me a second here to just sure. talk about, as a player, how much I love the ruined village. Like the, not, like, not like the giants came through and knocked this village down. Like the ancient ruins. That is one of my favorite settings to walk through mm -hmm. as a player. It's just, it is my bread and butter. <laughs> we we often talk about the campaign that you and I and Skid were in when I first got you back into playing Pathfinder. Yes. It was a homebrew, and a big part of that campaign was coming across old ruined cities and settlements in an Amazon jungle-like setting. It was just my favorite. We had so much fun working through those things. There's just so much history there and trying to piece together what happened. Is it just that over time they got ruined or were they ruined by a war a thousand years ago? You don't really know until you start doing the digging. It's like it's that chance of an RPG that an RPG gives you to play archaeologist. And I, and I love that aspect. And then on this cliffhanger, it's just it's another level of excitement that's just through the roof. It's a great idea on so many levels, I think. I, I don't even want to get too far into what a great idea it is because I have thoughts and plans and ideas for how I want to approach it. Uh -huh. But obviously, certain things are going to have to resolve first. I mean, I can't deny the fact that Barry has to be saved first. He's in a very dangerous situation yeah. with Nestor not knowing who he is. You know, that that is a dangerous situation. I, I there is a chance, I think, that 
he lives and we, we get to interact with him. And what I can see coming from that is just, it's so exciting. And not just for the return of a great character, but for this idea of a, uh, a creature that has been repurposed to hurt good people to try to bring him back. I think that that's something that Sir Will could be really involved in. And it, it's been a while since I feel like Sir Will has had proper motivation to, to, to redeem someone mm-hmm. that it could be good. You know, I think Nestor and Della are hopeless. So <laughs> it's, it's neat having that option yeah. in front of me. So I'm very excited for next session for Sir Will. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was just, this is one of those moments I, I have from time to time where I'm just, I just want to get to this part in the story. Cause I'm so excited because I know you guys would be excited, like when you found Lork in the top of the tower, just having Barry come back as well. It, it just, it's fun for me to be like, surprise, look who's uh, back. I but, can't even imagine how excited you were yeah. to drop that. Yeah, and, but I mean, it's obviously, I'm not going to just give it to you the way you expect it. There's a, there's a twist here. He's uh, an emaciated, uh, you know, looks very beat up, a little bigger for sure. And, and he doesn't know half of you. Yeah, and we don't know... Who are these other creatures? Yeah, we don't know whose possession he is in, yeah. and, uh, but you can assume that there's, you know, they're doing terrible things to him, and I hate it. And so I, I'm excited to, to, to deal with that next week. But I want to move on yeah. to our little Pathfinder class spotlight. Ah. We got, we're, we're later than usual because we got to talking about mechanics. <laughs> you know, this is what happens in our... We'll go to a party with, like, our wives, and we end up talking about DR and metagaming for Losers. a half hour. And they're like, loser, you stop talking about that shit? <laughs> um, so, Troy, let, introduce to, to us who are you going to talk about today and why? Well, the reason I'm talking about this is Joe and Skid and I and Grant are running games for people at Gen Con. We've sold out in, like seconds 24 people bought tickets to our games and so we thought it'd be fun to run the same pathfinder scenario for all of them with some very interesting differences that we'll talk about after the fact perhaps uh, because we don't want to spoil it for them so we thought it'd be fun since matthew can't go to gen con before we even read it or really get into it to have matthew run it for us and so i said let's use the (laughs) pathfinder iconics let's go with the fourth level pathfinder iconics and you can choose whatever iconic you want because that's what we're going to give the players a Gen Con and um, blah, blah, blah. Let's see how it goes. So I start looking through the iconics and I don't know what I want to play. And I come across the Vigilante straight out of ultimate intrigue. And it's a class that when I first read about, it, I was like, that sounds really cool. Can't imagine it ever working in an adventure path. Like, can you imagine a Vigilante in Giant Slayer? Like, that would have been well, I don't great know. in book one. Well, I don't really know anything about the Vigilante. Like, what can you tell me about the, the class? Well, it's, it's a class that's, like, basically a superhero with an alter ego. So the iconic Vigilante's name is Arik of Halvon, but his Vigilante name is the Red Raven. Oh! <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, I, heard, I heard about this. Uh, you know, this like idea of the superhero within the Pathfinder mechanic, not just a hero, but right. a superhero. Uh, that is very cool. So, what are what are some of the mechanics? Well, stri- the first, the most important thing right up top is special ability, dual identity. And I'm going to read this straight off the sheet. The character has two identities: his neutral good social identity as the nobleman Arik of Halvon, and his chaotic neutral vigilante identity. The Red Raven. So right there, he has two identities with two different alignments. 
I'm very interested already. <laughs> awesome. Knowledge checks about one identity do not reveal information about the other, and spells and effects that would locate one identity don't find the other unless the caster knows both identities, unless they know that, like, Batman is Bruce Wayne! The character picks an identity each morning and can change to the other one with one minute of costuming and mental preparation, i.e. phone booth. Superman in the phone booth. This character sheet refers to him as the Red Raven for simplicity, except in abilities that he can use only in his social identity. Uh, blah, 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 blah. So basically, you can check, you can pick a new vigilante identity every single day. So you don't have to be in the, the Red Raven every morning if you're playing the, or every night if you're playing the uh, iconic vigilante. So, so cool. So cool. Awesome. I don't even know how you would be able to do this. Like in book one of Giant Slayer, that would have been hilarious. You're just traveling around with Eric of Halvon asking questions and then like go into the plague house with the Red Raven. <laughs> So crazy, and then you walk into the 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 White Council. What was it called? The uh, the Ivory Hall. The Ivory Hall. And yes. Eric's like on the the board of directors, <laughs> and he's like, "I've heard this Red Raven has been causing trouble at the Playhouse." <laughs> Amazing what that have been. We got to redo. We got to redo this after we finish it. Yes. Anyways, combat reflexes. The Red Raven can make five attacks of opportunity per round, and can make attacks of opportunity even when he's flat footed. Uh, it has this trait, uh, this ability called extremely fashionable. The Red oh Raven gains God. a plus one trade bonus on bluff diplomacy and intimidate checks when he is wearing clothing and jewelry, jewelry worth at least 150 gold pieces and not covered in blood, dirt, or any unsightly substances. Just such an interesting thing. That's why he would be so, uh, the vigilante would be so good in a social campaign. A. Uh, Council of Thieves, a Curse of the Crimson Throne, a city-based game. Now, this is what jumped out at me, and I emailed you this afternoon because I was like, have you heard about Hidden Strike? Hidden Strike, this is um, sneak attack on steroids. (laughs) The Red Raven, so great, deals 2d8, 2d8 points of precision damage against enemies that are completely unaware of his presence or who consider him an ally. Oh. He can also deal hidden strike damage to a target he is flanking or deny their dexterity That's bonus to so AC. so much damage. But instead he does 2d4 of precision damage, like sne- regular sneak attack. But he can do 2d8 in that other circumstance. His up-close and personal vigilante talent gives him another way to deal hidden strike damage. And let me read you about that. I mean, there's just so many things going on. But the up close and personable, this is amazing. I would use this every single round. Up close and personal or up close and and personable? Personable. (laughs) Up close and personal. He's so nice. That guy's really personable. (laughs) When the Red Raven attempts an acrobatics check to move through an opponent's space as part of moving, he can attempt a single melee attack against that opponent as a swift action. What? This attack deals hidden strike damage. 2d4 if the acrobatic checks fails. 2d8 if it succeeds. Oh, that is so much fun. That is oh, so, so much fun. fun. 
And this is just a fourth level vigilante. Like this is a, you know, that's when you start to get into your powers. Fourth level, you're over the hump. If you haven't multi-classed at that point, I mean, I can't even imagine what the later classes, I mean, what the later levels of vigilante give you. And there was a bunch of other stuff on here as well. But I just wanted to give you a little taste. Of, yeah. I don't know how we can use it. I think I might play a vigilante in the game that Matthew runs. I don't know. Maybe it won't work, uh, but I think it'd be fun. You know what else is really fun, Troy? And speaking of uh, new characters, we had our release <laughs> of the new bonus content on the Patreon this week. How long have we been working on this and crafting it and how excited are we about this? I, I, I can't even put it into words. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about it. We gave that little freebie away last week and I, I have seen the pledges start skyrocketing up. I mean, people are really excited about it to have you listen to UGM and listen right. to me be a player. I mean, I'm really excited for people to listen to this. Yeah, and I don't want to go into details no. on it. I don't want Canafutter to be the recap of that show right now. I want people to go onto our Patreon. If you're a $5, if you just donate $5 a month, you can hear a whole new game. Where I am GMing, Troy is playing, new characters, new adventures, and it's going to be ongoing. It's not going to be every single week, but it is going to be ongoing, and that is to as a huge, huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. And honestly, it wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible without them. So uh, please go onto our Patreon and check that out. Little little plug there, Troy. Just work it in Just before a listener plug. mail. I mean, hell, we have a new cast member on it, for crying out loud. Oh, my God! We have a new... <laughs> we're, we're saying too much. <laughs> we're saying too much. Let's get to a little lis- lis- listener mail, good buddy. <laughs> listener <laughs> mail. Ever, ever, ever. Remix. It's time for And once again, as usual, Troy and I are going way longer than we expected on Cannon Fodder, and so I'm glad we have a question this week that I know you're going to answer in one word, or maybe three, and then have nothing more to talk about. This is from (laughs) Dave in East Haddam, Connecticut. Ah! Old East Haddam, who writes, What is your experience, if any, with replaying Adventure Paths? Does prior knowledge of all the secrets and storyline ruin your second playthrough? I absolutely love your podcast, but part of me regrets listening to it each week because I feel like I'm writing off playing this great adventure path on my own. Troy, your thoughts. Would you ever replay an adventure path? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> End of discussion. And because... We'll see you next week. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. I gotta go build my vigilante. Uh, I The reason I wouldn't replay it is because knowing what time I have left in my life. No, left period. Like, I will never be able to get through all of the Paizo Adventure Paths that already exist. So I, I can't imagine a time when I'm going to be like, well, I'm all caught up. Guess I'll go back to Kingmaker. <laughs> Like, who, in what world are you doing this? Um, I would replay Kingmaker before I'd ever play a 5e. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Oh, Burn City. Curse of Strahd can blow me. (laughs) So inappropriate. So inappropriate. That was was too much. (laughs) Pause for edit. (laughs) Uh, You can't take that. Let me just say flat out, I would not only replay an adventure path i would do it happily oh you are such a liar no happily i think that when i think back on the 
the tug of war in Trunal mm. and that situation and those NPCs and what they were in, the thought of bringing in a brand new character into that scenario when I know more of the greater plot, the whole uh, kit and caboodle, the whole sure. story, but trying my hardest to play the character as if they don't. I think I would have so much fun. I mean, it's like rereading a great book. Sure. You, you know what's sure. going to happen, but you but you you get so much more out of the early parts than you did before. So many adventure paths, especially when Skid's GMing, you end up having no idea what is happening. You have no <laughs> you're not going to get any clue. You get some clues and you have to piece everything together and yes, that is fun. There are fun elements to that. But I've never really this isn't something that I have thought about a lot it's not something that, but when i saw this question i was like thinking about could i start over in giant slayer and play it straight and play it well i believe that i could i believe that i could keep enough separation uh to have character deaths to have characters go down the wrong path to have characters to be confused obviously it's nowhere near as pure but i think it could be a really fun and interesting experience i don't know i i mean i just think you're foolish yeah i know <laughs> That's why I knew this would be a quick listener man. Roderick dies, and then you know exactly who to talk to. And then if say, let's say you play a little suspension of disbelief, I like, oh, let's go talk to Sarah Morninghawk first until we, we go back to the the ramble house. That's true. I didn't you think know, about that. Like, I mean, the that whole murder mystery—you just cut right to the chase, or you would just bore yourself going through stuff where you already know what it's going to be. I think the only way that you could actually do it is have a, the same GM run you through it and change everything. Sure, you know or mean? if you were playing it with all players that hadn't played it before, and you agreed to sort of take a back seat and be a, a PC in that game but not drive everything, mm-hmm. uh, and you would be disciplined about not saying, guys, 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 trust me, no, let's go this way, <laughs> or no... Cham doesn't know. We'll go talk to blah, blah, blah. Uh, well, for, first thing we got to do is find Brynja and get the knife. Like, the, those kind of things. If you can hold off of that, I think that, that there's an element to it of having the other players uh, that are fresh. But, yeah, I didn't think about the murder investigation. With the murder <laughs> investigation, if everybody had played before, it would be asinine to, to redo that. Right. Or, like, you open a door that you already know is trapped. You know, or like you go to Lockmore, Edagun, the the whole uh, tomb of Nargum Steelhand. You know exactly what to expect. Like the, you couldn't just. <laughs> it reminds me of like uh, of like um, Groundhog Day. You know, when, right. when there's certain moments where it's just like, oh no, uh, we have to do this now. You know, like going through the motions <laughs> right, of right, acting right. like you don't know what's happening. Uh, but yeah, I think that. But I think Dave is probably asking this question. And I'm just thinking about this now in the context of if he was asked to play in a Giant Slayer adventure path with people that hadn't played it before, and that was what they were going to play, and he doesn't have another game to be in. I think you could do it. Dave could do it. You couldn't. And not you, Joe, just like anybody in this game. You can't, you can't have played it and play it again. I think if you're listening to our rendition of it, you're, if the G, certainly if the GM hasn't listened, it's going to be totally different. I've changed, I've changed a decent amount of stuff. That's true. Um, well, well you, one time you did this. You, I did. You, I replayed a PFS scenario that, that I were running. And what is not, it was not an evergreen. It was a very clear yeah. story. And you replayed it because we were down on options and we thought somebody had something prepared and they didn't. So I just reran something I already knew. Yeah. What was your experience with that? Did you have fun? I, I did have fun. Uh, you changed maybe like one or two encounters. Yeah, I, I uh, But for the most, it was actually, it was Citadel Flame, which is what I ran for, uh, you know, the people that came out to PaizoCon. And uh, 
<laughs> do you remember the the circumstances? Like we had to finish up one Pathfinder scenario. We only had like one encounter left, and everyone was pretty clear that Skid had to prepare another one because we had enough time. We had like seven hours, and we finished the scenario in like forty minutes. And we we're like, all right, Skid, Skid was like, good to see you guys. <laughs> it was like, so what are we doing next? <laughs> So, Skid, what is the uh, stop uh, leaving us in suspense here? What's the next one? Like, what? And he was just like, "What? What are you talking about?" And <laughs> that was a fun. That was a fun night. And then we just decided, like, well, but I, you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Yeah, I did. Um, but you took a back seat to the other players. I did. You just sort of made yourself muscle. You right. made yourself kind of a dumb fighter. And and listen, the dice are always going to roll differently. Was the it the attacks, situation? What was, it? What was his I name? created a character on the spot. He was a hobgoblin fighter. Called the the uh, I think he was called no not the situation the, the solution the solution the solution and he always talked in the third person. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. Yeah, I mean, I rolled up that character in about five minutes. But I mean, yes, it was fun. But the only uh, sort of mystery was what are my dice rolls going to be, or like sure. how my power, how is this character's so power going to be fun. different? Yeah, yeah. So all right, well, Dave. Sorry, thank, Dave. Thank you. Sorry, Dave. Thank you so much for the question, Dave. I appreciated it. I think you could still play in a Giant Slayer game as long as everything else was fresh to everybody else. You would experience it fresh through their eyes as you went. I think that that would that would there's something to be said for that. So, thanks for the question again. We appreciate it, and thanks to everybody for tuning in. And don't forget to check out our Patreon for the new really newly released one hour show. That, uh, that just dropped yesterday. I don't want to say too much about it, but uh, you'll have to check out our Patreon to hear it. It is, uh, it's definitely new. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to listen fun. to it right now. <laughs>